What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Does it mean we have to leave everything behind and go live in a monastery? Does it mean we need to quit doing everything we like and just grit our teeth trying not to be bad? In reality, becoming a serious disciple of Jesus is a way of life more fulfilling than anything we can imagine, as we'll see in our lesson today. I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And today is especially a time of application as we talk about discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples, the first thing he said was, follow me. The foundation of being a disciple is spending time with Jesus. Though we can't do that physically now, we can spend time with Jesus by reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, meditating on them, praying for insight and understanding. If you're on the Bible 805 reading plan this fall, you're finishing the first three and will read John near the end of the year. This lesson, though, is for you at any time, even if you're not reading this plan or just whenever you might want to learn more about what it means to be a disciple. Because discipleship wasn't just for a select few back then, and it isn't for just a select few people today. We see this truth in the all-encompassing call to be disciples in Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 18-20, where he said, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've given all authority, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I hope we paid attention as we read through the Gospels because we're supposed to teach them to others. Maybe not formally teaching, but wherever you are, however you organize your life, whoever you're around, we can all teach by our lives. And I want you to really take that seriously. Consider how important discipleship is, no matter who you are, no matter what you do. Jesus' primary mission was to die for our sins. Now, that could have been taken care of really quickly. Now, bear with me for just a minute. I think this is kind of an important foundation for discipleship, and maybe not something you've thought about before. But he could have just accomplished the work of redemption by Doing it, staging a massive rebellion when he first appeared. Um, he could have easily gotten himself arrested, crucified, in the grave, uh, rose immediately and returned to heaven. But he didn't do that. He spent three years on earth living with a group of disciples, healing, teaching, interacting with him. Even after his resurrection, Jesus did not immediately ascend into heaven. But he spent 40 more days with his disciples, teaching them, encouraging them, eating meals with them, and finally giving them the charge to share the message of salvation and make disciples. It seems obvious that he wanted more than just a group of people to sort of grab the goody of salvation and then do whatever they wanted with their lives. He wanted, he chose to train to teach, to create a specific kind of people. He wanted to make disciples. He wanted a group of people who knew him well, who understood the values of the kingdom of God that he had come to make real. And 
disciples who would share the totality of that message with the world, who would live out the message of redeemed people that he demonstrated to them. The most important thing we can then do in response is, obviously, to become a disciple. The Gospels are a start in our training, and we'll examine one passage in the lesson today in a lot more detail for how to do it. And then what we're going to read next, again, if, if you're following the reading plan, is We'll talk about the start of the church in Acts, and then we're going to be going through the epistles. And these letters are written to the church, to the early disciples, and you'll see a lot more about how you're supposed to live as a disciple. But before we go into that, I want to share with you one of my favorite definitions of what a disciple is. And this comes from Dallas Willard, where he says, we need to clear in our heads what does about what discipleship is? My definition, Dallas Willards. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples simply are people, and this, this is a part I just love, who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. Now, we're going to look at a passage in the Gospels that we've been reading through to help us understand what it means to, con to be constantly revising our affairs on our decision to follow Jesus. This is something I want to share that personally means so much to me. I'm continuously asking this in my own life, and I encourage you to do that. We must do it if we want to become like Jesus, if we want to grow as his disciples, because doing that does not come naturally. What we want to do is not the natural way to become his disciple. Today, just as a very practical example, today before recording this lesson, which I'm behind on recording and I knew I needed to get done, um, I really wanted to go to Barnes and Noble and drink coffee and look at decorating books. That's what I really wanted to do. But I needed to do this lesson, and I wanted to share with you what it means to be a disciple. And so I was rearranging my time to find time to do that. And, and that's a very little silly thing. But constantly we come up with challenges in our life that we might need to rearrange to become a disciple of Jesus. We need to continuously do this because almost everything in our world today, even good things, are the opposite of what it means to be a disciple. Now, let's start doing this, get some inspiration and advice for it, by looking in detail at a passage in Luke, Luke 14, 15 through 35. We're going to do it in two sections. The first section, Luke 14, 15 through 23, is the parable of a great bank of the great banquet. And then the second Park, part, Luke 14, 24 through 35, is on the cost of being a disciple. These two need to be considered together because it's easy if we just jump right into the cost of being a disciple section that for people to think that to be truly serious about discipleship means you must commit yourself to a miserable life. And that is a lie from Satan. Anything 
worthwhile in life is achieved is seldom achieved with ease and no effort. Of course, there are challenges, things we need to do, things we need to say no to. Um, it's true in everything from losing weight to having a successful career to writing books, creating any form of significant art. And because of that, how much more is required of us in how we shape our eternal souls. But yet at the same time, that's not all there is to it. And in Luke 14, 15 through 23, let's look at the parable of the great banquet. When one of those at table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all began, all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you order has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, here's why the first passage is about a party. Commentators often focus on the excuses that people make for not attending. And even though they previously accepted the invitation, you see just a little bit of background here. In the ancient world, the way they often did it is a person who was throwing a really huge party would uh, send out an invitation and say, in a certain amount of time, I'm going to have this huge party. But it took a while to get things organized and all together. And then when the time actually came for the party, that's when the messengers were sent out to collect the guests. So people had already RSVP'd, if you will, and said they were willing to come. But then when the actual time came to come, they weren't so ready to do it. Obviously, that's a lot like all of us. When we accept God's offer of salvation, yeah, I'll sign up, I'll be a disciple, but then something comes up. For me today, it was uh, coffee at Barnes & Noble or work on my lesson. And it was a challenge. It was. I'm not uh, sharing this to say that, that that was actually an easy choice. But we often come up with these little crossroads or big crossroads where we need to make a decision. Their excuses included business transactions, buying something, a relationship. Again, common excuses that people have for not following through on their initial acceptance of Jesus. But what they miss out on is the ultimate banquet, the incredible joy of an eternal relationship with God, or even just a growing one. And I have to tell you that if I'd gone to get coffee today, I would have been sitting there feeling really guilty. I wouldn't have enjoyed it. Right now, it is, quite honestly, giving me great joy to be sharing this lesson with you. But to move along, uh, William Barclay, in his commentary on this section, said, people thought they were going after better things, but they weren't. 
Jesus is a God of joy who started his ministry turning water into wine and who gives us a final picture of heaven, one of many, where it's pictured as a great banquet. We must remember our future joy, our eternal reality as a foundation to all the Gospels have told us and all ahead because of the demands of discipleship we'll look at next. Again, remember joy awaits, just like the joy of losing weight, of finishing a creative project, of whatever it is. Now, here's some additional quotes on it, on what in the whole idea of maybe giving up something, but how God is worth it. C.S. Lewis said, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. And another quote of his, such a good one, give, yourself, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. The passage goes on about the cost of being a disciple in Luke 14, 25 through 35. It's in four sections, what to love less, how to carry your cross, how to count the cost, and my favorite, stay salty. Okay, let's get into these. Here's Barclay's commentary on these passages. It's his sort of overall commentary. When Jesus said this, these next four things that he's going to challenge us on, he was on the road to Jerusalem. He knew he was on his way to the cross. The crowds who were with him thought he was on his way to an empire. That is why he spoke to them like this. And earlier, Barclay said how so often Jesus prior to this was upbeat and encouraging and positively challenging. And here he just gets really serious. But again, he's on his way to the cross. The crowds thought he was on his way to an empire, and he is correcting that. In the most vivid way possible, he told them, I'm quoting Barclay again, that the man who followed him was not on the way to worldly power and glory, but must be ready for a loyalty which would sacrifice the dearest things in life and for a suffering which would be like the agony of a man upon a cross. We must not take his words with cold and unimaginative little literalness. Eastern language as always is always as vivid, <laughs> excuse me, as the human mind can make it. When Jesus tells us to hate our nearest and dearest, he does not mean that literally. He means that no love in this life can compare with the love we must bear to him. And here is what we need to learn from the passage. Listen to this carefully. It is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple, to be a camp follower without being a soldier of the king, to be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight. Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a younger man. He said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. The teacher answered devastatingly, he may have attended my lectures, but he was not 
one of my students. It is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that in it there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. In Luke 14, 25 and 26, and now we're getting into the meat of what it means to be a real disciple, the challenge is to love less. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. In Thayer's Greek Concordance, it translates the word hate literally as meaning to love less. This means to put Jesus before all natural affections, all other than Jesus, were to love less. This is challenging, obviously, for those who become Christians from a hostile faith. Someone choosing Jesus from a Muslim background or even a Mormon background, they can face some really tough times, and they have to decide that everything else they love less than Jesus. But it's also challenging for family first Americans. So often as a teacher, as someone that works in the church, I hear people using as excuses why they can't be involved or come to things or whatever. Oh, my family's decided to do this. We're going on this vacation. We want to do this special thing, etc., etc., etc. And that's not to say these things are evil or bad, but too many of them, too much time, You've got to really evaluate doing those things. Does that really mean that you love them more than Jesus? It's a tough question. David Guzak has uh, some additional commentary on this that's real good, where he says, The greatest danger of idolatry comes not from what is bad, but from what is good, such as love and family relationships. The greatest threat to the best often comes from second best. Honest prayerful evaluation is needed here, and wisdom as to know what do our priorities show the world as to what's most important to us. What is best for you to give to your families? Stuff, special activities, or prayer, challenges, and maybe Christian opportunities? Moving along, the second section on carrying your cross, where Jesus said, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. This, actually, the passage refers to the cross beam carried on the way to crucifixion. And many commentators have said, carrying, picking up your cross and following him, it was a way of saying you knew death was ahead. In this instant, death of yourself, death of your desires, your way. Now, your own cross will have different meanings for different people. We all have different ones, and we ought to never compare ours with someone else's. Your cross, what is it in you that you know needs to die before you can progress as a disciple? Remember, Dallas Willard said, we must be constantly revising our affairs. It's not just one and done. 
we quit doing one thing that we thought, oh, I just can't quit doing that. We quit that. Then there's, there's always something else until we meet Jesus. So continuously revise your affairs. No matter what the interpretation, the point is that being a disciple is not easy. It's not a what's in it for me in this life. You know, it, Jesus is supposed to just make me happy. No, that isn't what he said. He said, carry your cross. And then count the cost. In verse 14, 28, he says, don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? If he can't, he'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything that you have. Now, there are two areas here, building and a war. As one commentator said, two areas of life where we always underestimate the cost. Remember, Jesus wasn't begging people to follow him. It says at this time that large crowds were traveling with them, with, with Jesus, but he wanted them to consider what following him really meant. And things would not go as they wanted now, there's a number of thoughts and applications on this that follow. On counting the cost, first of all, when you share the gospel with someone else, we need to be honest that there's a cost involved. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received of God? You are not your own. When a Christian accepts Jesus' gift of salvation, and the Holy Spirit comes to live within them, within all of us. We are not our own. The verse goes on, you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great preacher, would not allow people to accept Christ when they first wanted to respond. He was a powerful, powerful preacher, and people would just really want to uh, come forward, respond, uh, decide to become a Christian. They were told to go home and think about it. It was a serious life and eternity changing decision. If someone is a new or young Christian, when perhaps you first heard that there's a cost involved after you accepted the quote-unquote free gift of salvation, you and you heard that you might need to give up previous thoughts, beliefs, preferences, practices, that it wasn't just a goodie grab, you may feel like you are a victim of bait and switch. And you may be, sadly, when many people present the gospel today, they don't let prospective believers in Jesus know there is a cost. Now, most likely that was unintentional by the person who shared with you. Maybe they didn't really realize it themselves. But it is both true that salvation is a free gift. You can't deny that. We can't do anything to earn it or deserve it. But it is also true that you have obligations once you accept it. Now that you know there's a cost involved, what are you going to do about it? 
Just like you rarely do a budget once and then you're done in your everyday life, sitting down to count the cost needs to be a continual thing in your Christian life. Or you need to just do it if you haven't done it before. Sit down. Go over your life, the priorities of your life. Take time and consider what rearranging you might need to do to progress, to grow as a disciple of Jesus. It isn't an optional thing to do because the section ends with a very serious warning on giving up everything. In Calvin's commentary, he said, It would be absurd to insist on a literal interpretation of the phrase as if no man were a disciple of Christ till he threw into the sea all that he possessed, divorced his wife, bade farewell to his children. Such idle dreams led foolish people to adopt a monastic life, as if those who intend to come to Christ must leave off humanity. Yet, no man truly forsakes all that he possesses until he is prepared at every instance to leave all gives himself free and unconstrained to the Lord, and rising above every hindrance, pursues his calling. Thus the true self-denial which the Lord demands from his followers does not consist so much in outward conduct as in the affections, so that everyone must employ the time which is passing over him without allowing the objects which he directs by his hand to hold a place in his heart. And then the final section, stay salty, in verses 20, 34 and 35 in the NLT, where it says, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It's thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. William Barclay has some interesting comments on this where he said, Jesus uses salt as a symbol of the Christian life. What then are its essential qualities? In Palestine, it had three characteristic uses. Salt was used as a preservative, as the earliest of all preservatives. Without salt, a thing putrefied and went bad. With it, its freshness was preserved. That means that true Christianity must act as a preservative against the corruption of the world. The individual Christian must be the conscience of his fellows. He must be like a cleansing antiseptic in the circle in which he moves. Salt was used as a flavoring. Food without salt can be revoltingly insipid. The Christian, then, must be the man who brings flavor into life. The Christianity, which acts like a shadow of gloom and a wet blanket, is no true Christianity. The Christian is the man who, by his courage, his hope, his cheerfulness, and his kindness, brings a new flavor into life. Salt was used on the land. It was used to make it easier for all good things to grow. The Christian must be such that he makes it easier for people to be good and harder to be bad. We all know people in whose company there are certain things we would not and could not do. And equally, we all know people in whose company we might well stoop to things which by ourselves we would not do. There are fine souls in whose company it is easier to be brave and cheerful and good. The Christian must carry within him a breath of heaven in which the fine things flourish and the evil shrivel up. That is the function of the Christian. If he fails in his function, there is no good reason why he should exist at all. 
And we have already seen that in the economy of God, uselessness invites disaster. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Being a fruitful Christian is serious, as Barclay reminds us. And the warning of being thrown away in this passage is something to take serious. And the challenge is also, it reminds me of the challenge in John 15, 5 and 6, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. Now, there are two kinds of fruit that Jesus is talking about here. There's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, and the fruit of life actions, good deeds, kindness, charity, evangelism, hospitality, true salvation should result in a fruitful life. Now, we've only scratched the surface of what it means to be a disciple, but it is incredibly important. Go back over what you've read in the Gospels. Read and pray over carefully what's coming up, what you'll be reading in the rest of the New Testament, and take time to ask yourself these questions. What do I need to love less? Where can I be salty? Where and how can I answer Jesus' invitation to joy and be encouraged by the future of a faithful disciple? C.S. Lewis again, where he says, Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it, made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. We are to be remade. All the rabbit in us is to disappear, the worried, conscientious, ethical rabbit, as well as the cowardly and sensual rabbit. We shall bleed and squeal as the handfuls of fur come out, and then, surprisingly, we shall find underneath it all a thing we have never yet imagined, a real man, ageless, a son of God, strong, radiant, wise, beautiful, and drenched in joy. Whatever the work, whatever the cost of pursuing discipleship, it is worth it. That's all for now. Please check out the notes and links to related material, including videos, podcasts, infographics, all sorts of teaching things on Bible805.com. And do sign up for the newsletter so that you receive updates and materials as they're created and posted. And please tell your friends about these many resources. These are challenging days, and Bible805 has so much that will help you know, trust, apply, and also teach the Bible. Until next time. I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.